0: good afternoon everybody this is disputed questions today we will be talking about the filioque that is the idea that the holy spirit proceeds from the father and the son now today is going to be a little bit shorter because the oppositions that the eastern our eastern brethren have against us and against our insertion of the filioque into the creed kind of aren't that many they have a few quotations from some fathers and then they have the the canonical question of it being added into the creed and the uh, validity behind that and then they have a few other very minor arguments but for the most part it's pretty clear cut to me that uh, the western christians the western catholic tradition in which we are all part of is correct on this question, and that it's a valid development from the earlier questions in Trinitarian theology. So as a bit of a, I'm gonna give a bit of a historical overview. I like to do that before um, diving into the theological uh, question mainly because I really like to think about it and to look about how it's developed through history and about how these debates went. And the names and the different rulings of different councils, it can give us uh, a bit of a background in order to be grounded and not just view these uh, theological questions uh, completely separated from those who have become those who have come before us the fathers and the scholastics and even in the post-Reformation era although I won't go into the post-Reformation debates Although I've, I've read some of the Reformed Scholastics make comments on this, and I'm, I'm basically in line with what they're going to say. So in the 5th century, you'll have a few Western synods, a few local uh, theologians in their creeds are going to, are going to state that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That language becomes explicit, in, in the 5th century, although some argue that before that, there's implicit statements from other theologians, but the term filioque appears in the 5th century. And then in the 6th century, you get people who start taking that filioque and adding it into the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed that most of us are familiar with as Western Christians is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son but originally in 381 the creed just said from the father not from the father and the son so this addition of the filioque into the creed in the late 6th century had to do with many of the arian Christ- A- not arian heretics not arian christians who were taking over a lot of uh, northern and western European Europe at the time. So it first arose in Spain and then gained some ground, but it was, it was not universal for centuries. So then you get into the 7th century. So the 7th century, you'll get uh, the East beginning to catch on to the Western usage. And there begins to be some debates between the East and the West on this issue. So you'll get Patriarch Paul II of Constantinople, who reigned in the 640s, accuses Pope Theodore I and Pope Martin I of using the expression and it being a a heretical expression to use. So in response, the Pope excommunicates Paul II for monothelitism. So I guess it's not really in response, but this is around the same time. So there be, there beco- there is a uh, public debate that takes place uh, between the two and there's letters written back and forth and such. And actually Saint. Maximus the Confessor, uh, who was very instrumental in the monothelite controversy, he comments on the issue in in some letters and it's really interesting what he says because he actually takes the side of the Western Christians in the uh, in the validity of using the term filioque. So I have have a quote right here. Um, He says that the Romans have produced the unanimous evidence of the Latin fathers and also of Cyril of Alexandria. On the basis of these texts, they've shown that they have not made the son the cause of the spirit. They know in fact that the father is the only cause of the son and the spirit, the one by begetting the other by procession. But that they have manifested the procession through him, and have thus shown the unity and the identity of essence. So, what what maximus is saying is that the latins are completely fine in what they're saying they're being more precise and this is a valid development the east and the west don't really have a disagreement on this view at, at this point but it's just a, a a game of a game of semantics that's taking place with the east not liking what the west is doing by adding it and they're misunderstanding what they're saying is as uh, are be as they're they're misunderstanding what they're saying as um that there are two principles but the West has always confessed that there is one principle. So this is a really interesting quote from a canonized saint and a very eminent canonized saint and doctor of the East in, in Max, St. Maximus the Confessor. So then uh, later in the late 8th century, the the debate shifts from Rome and the East to one of the daughter churches of Rome uh, the in in the Holy Roman Empire in the East. so the the See of Rome isn't the one who has debates in the eighth century. It's really um, it's it's basically Charlemagne. So at the um, where is it? Where are my notes? So Charlemagne, yes, that's Charlemagne, accuses Patriarch Tarissos of Constantinople of going against the faith of the first council of Nicaea and this is at the second council of Nicaea. So what, what he says is that because the East do not use the Filioque but they only confess through the sun that they are rejecting the first council of Nicaea. So I don't think Charlemagne actually really knew that the Filioque was an addition onto the, the creed. He thought it was original. But Pope Adrian I explains to Charlemagne, well, actually, they're not really going against the faith of Nicaea because originally that wasn't in the Nicene Creed, and there are plenty of fathers who don't use the term filioque, but use through the son. And of course, Charlemagne, not being a theologian, doesn't really understand this, and he still continues to gun after the East, so that causes some tension between the East and the West, and this is really through a um, misunderstanding. So then the 9th century, so this is when it really heats up. This is when, th- this really lays the groundwork for the schism of the 11th century, the great schism, the schism of 1054. So the patriarch Photius of Constantinople, and there's a dispute between him and the patriarch Ignatius of Constantinople. So Photius issued an encyclical and called a council in Constantinople, and he charges the Western church with heresy and schism because they use the filioque and also because of the authority of the papacy. So the council actually declared Pope Nicholas, they declared him anathema, and then excommunicated and deposed him. So this is a pretty serious dispute going on at first between patriarchs, and then it spreads to the east Deposing a pope in the West, and of course, this was of no effect because the East didn't really have jurisdictional authority over the papacy. So this turns into a very, very serious schism that happens between the East and the West. And of course, this is resolved. And then in the 11th century, the uh, the schism becomes permanent, and that is the the time in the 11th century when the the Pope really universalizes the use of the filioque in the West. And then now it gets even more interesting when you see what happens in the uh, in the East and the West after the schism, because there's two councils, the, uh, the Second Council of Lyon, and then you have the Council of Florence, which both uh, treat this issue as a uh, as the dividing line between the East and the West, and they come to resolutions in both cases. So the Second Council of Lyon, which is an ecumenical council in the West, well, regarded by uh, the Latin church as being an ecumenical council, they accept the profession of Emperor Michael VIII, the Byzantine emperor. So we believe also in the Holy Spirit, fully, perfectly, and truly God, proceeding from the Father and the Son, fully equal of the same substance, equal almighty and equally eternal with the Father and the Son in all things. And then also you get at the Second Council of Lyon that there are Greek patriarchs, the patriarch of Constantinople, Joseph I, and others who are participating with Western Christians in their liturgy using the Filioque. And, uh, Eventually, what happens is this falls apart, and obviously they don't—they um, don't come together. And, and yeah, that's basically it. But what's interesting about this, about the uh, Second Council of Lyon, is that it is that there are statements with and the son accepted by the East before the the council eventually uh, doesn't come to anything. And then also the council, uh, the second council of Lyon is going to condemn uh, two different errors. So they're gonna condemn the error of saying there's two principles, which is what the East, a lot of people in the East think the West is teaching. And they're also going to condemn the opposite error of saying that the sun isn't participating in the spiration of the spirit, so there are these two errors, which are condemned in the East and the West, are uh, are fine with that. That these two errors are condemned, and that they have come to a point of unity, but eventually, as I said, it breaks up, and then later you have the Council of Florence, which is in 1439. And at the Council of Florence, this is really the closest that the East and the West have come to unity and and they discuss all of the differences of the uh, uh of the latins and of the greeks and they actually come to a joint statement on the filioque and basically the agreement is uh, is that there's an agreement of substance, but there's a different expression in the faith between the Latins and the Greeks. And it's signed by every single one of the Eastern bishops except the one which is Mark of Ephesus. So that's the history behind uh, the Filioque and how it was debated and received in the East and the West. And the conclusion that you get from, from this historical overview is that in the, uh, in the late patristic and in the medieval era... You come to an agreement between the East and the West that basically they're saying the same thing, but with with different uh, expressions of the faith, but substantially they're the same thing. And then there's an agreement that you cannot confess two principles of spiration, of uh, origin in the spiration of the spirit. Okay, so now uh, answering the question of whether... The Spirit proceeds from the Son. So it seems so, for the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ, especially in Romans 8. Further, the Athanasian Creed, which is authoritative in the West, states the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, not made, nor created, nor begotten, per- proceeding. Further, the, Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit in the Gospel of John. Further, Cyril also, in his epistle received by the Council of Chalcedon, says, He is called the Spirit of Truth, and is the Spirit of Truth, for He proceeds therefrom, as also from God the Father. And now, similar statements are also made by uh, Pope St. Leo I in his Tome further didymus in his work on the holy spirit says neither is the son distinct save in those things which he receives from the father nor is the holy spirit of another substance besides what is conceded namely that he is from this son and proceeds from him and now further saint Hilary in de trinitate states keep me i pray in this expression of my faith that I may ever possess the Father, namely thyself, that I may adore thy son together with thee, and that I may deserve thy Holy Spirit, who is through thy only begotten. Okay, now into the Respondeo. So first I'm going to explain kind of what I mean by these processions and these begottings and from this and by this, and in all of these terms. So these are called the intertrinitarian relations. So when you look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are three persons, and they are not separated, but they're distinct, and they have the same essence. So how can we distinguish the Father from the Son and, and the Holy Spirit if they have the same essence? And now the the universally agreed upon way in which we do distinguish is between what's called the, the uh, processions, or the relations at intro. So, if you've if you if you've heard of the term begotten, that is that the son is from the father as uh, as uh, analogous to the relationship of a of a father begetting a son. So the father is the monarch of the Trinity, and he's unbegotten, and he is uh, and he begets the son, and the spirit spirates from him. But he has no origin. He has no principle. He is his own origin and own principle. He is unbegotten. And then when you look at the son, the son is begotten from the father. He has the father as his origin. Now, when I speak of origin, it's an eternal origin. I'm not saying this is an origin in time. And I get to the spirit. Now, the West is going to confess that the spirit has its origin from the father through the son as one principle. And the East is going to say that the Spirit has its origin from the Father alone. And that's going to be the debate that we, that we get into, whether the principle or origin of the Spirit is from the Father, as the East says, or from the Father through the Son, as the West says. So, um, it's important to remember, as I stated before, that we aren't teaching that there's two principles. We're not saying that there are two streams which come together and form the Spirit, as that analogy of proceeding. So there's a procession of the Father and the procession of the Son, and they come together to form the Spirit. That is not at all what we're saying. Um, what we're saying is that the father spirates the spirit and the father immediately spirates the spirit through the mediation of the son in that it is one principle. So the way that some of the scholastics, and I believe that this is found in some of the fathers, the way that they're going to explain this idea is the relationship between Adam, Eve, and Abel. So Adam is as the father and Eve is as the son because the Eve is coming through the side of I mean coming from the side of Adam. That is as the begottenness, and then when you look at Abel, Abel is coming from Adam, because Adam is the active principle when it comes to the uh, begetting of his son, and then it's going to be through Eve. It's from Adam through Eve is Abel. And that is that idea which the West is trying to get at, that it's not that you have these two parents acting separately and mixing together something. You have a unity of origin in that Adam is immediately using Eve to beget uh, his son Abel, and of course, remember that this was before a lot of uh, the scientific discoveries when it comes to reproduction. So just just hold to the analogy. Uh, don't don't get too much into the weeds. So I'm gonna get a drink of water. Further, this is uh, this is seen most clearly in what are called the outward missions. So through the Gospels, you see our Lord over and over again saying that He is sent from the Father, that He is sent from the Father, the Father sends me, and and such statements as that. And these are and this is called the temporal mission. So the Father's reasoned that in order to have to be sent by somebody, in order, if I if I tell, if I send Somebody in my place, if the U.S. sends an ambassador in their place to another country, the person sending, namely the United States, has authority over that person in order to send them on that mission. And the reasoning is, follows thus. So the father can't have a, uh, an authority over the son which has to do with uh, some superiority of essence or some special attribute that the father has that the son doesn't. The only way in which this sending could happen is if there's an authority um, of origin. So the son comes from the father, therefore the, the father sends the son. Now the issue you have with this, if you're going to deny the filioque, is that our Lord frequently speaks of himself as sending the spirit, so I will send the spirit. I will send the Comforter. I will send the Paraclete. You have all of these statements where the the Son is the one who sends the spirit. So in some way, the origin of the spirit has to be found in the Son. And now the Father is also spoken of as a source of uh, as a, as somebody who sends the spirit. Our Lord speaks of that in the Gospel of John. So both the father and the son must in some way have that authority over the spirit to send him. The son would have no authority over the spirit if the father alone was the one who uh, who th- the spirit alone proceeded from the father. And the father alone was the origin of the spirit without the son being an origin. Because then there would be no relationship of authority between the authority to send between the, the Son and the Spirit. And I'd like to note that I'm not using authority and subordination in the same way that the eternal subordination, the, the ESS people, are speaking of it. I'm speaking of the sense of the fathers. I can I can speak about that some other place, but just, just don't want to get canceled. So now you also have, uh, in, in the Eastern argumentation, there's a problem with how they use the fathers. So all the time you'll get the father speaking in the same way as the creed speaks. So the creed speaks of the spirit proceeding from the father, and you'll get all the time the father's making the same similar statements to that. Now the east reasons from these statements, well, they're not saying that the spirit proceeds from the the son. And this is an issue because that doesn't go against necessarily our position because we understand and accept the original 381 formation of the Nicene Creed. And people like me who are Anglicans who do not uh, submit to the authority of the papacy also are going to affirm the original 381 formulation of the Nicene Creed as being canonically binding. So we have no problem with that statement. Because it doesn't necessarily exclude that the Spirit also proceeds immediately through the Son. The only thing that it's affirming is that it proceeds immediately from the Father alone. And we have no problem with that. But the problems that the East are going to run into is that they have to admit that multiple fathers over and over and over again, especially those I just quoted, such as Cyril of Alexandria, uh, Pope St. Saint Leo, St. Saint Igna- Saint, uh, Augustine, you'll have these multiple fathers who are saying filioque. They're saying through the son, they're saying and the son, they're, they're making statements like that. And that's a problem for the East because that necessarily excludes their position that you can't use the term filioque, but it doesn't necessarily exclude our position that you could just say and uh, you could just say from the Father. So uh, further, a, a theological argument against what the East is saying is that there must be a distinction between the Son and the Spirit, as we have stated earlier. And it's not a distinction of essence, because then one or the other would not be God because there's no real distinction between person and essence therefore the only distinction there can be is one of origin and relation and if you're going to posit no distinction you deny that there are three you deny that there are three persons because if you say that the origin and relation of the father and the son and the origin and relation of the father and the spirit is the exact same you have absolutely no distinction between the spirit and the son and you collapse the spirit and the son Within one another, because there is no relation between the Son and the Spirit. But in the Western system, what you have is you have a not only of that relation of uh, immediate spiration between the Father and the Son, an immediate uh, generation between the Father, I mean, between the Father and the Spirit, an immediate generation between the Father and the Son, but you also have a relationship between the Son and the Spirit that is of immediate spiration because the Father is going to spirate the Spirit through the Son. So, you have that relation by which you can distinguish uh, the the Spirit and the Son in the Trinity, but the East cannot have this distinction. So, they're ultimately going to have to collapse the Spirit and the Son, and you're not going to come out with three persons because there is no way to distinguish the two unless you have a distinction of relation. So, there's... There's two ways you could go about this. You could either have a denial of any distinctions between the three, and then you have, you don't have three persons, or you could um, affirm a distinction of essence, and then you have three gods. There's no way of getting around having to have a distinction of relation and origin between the spirit and the sun. So uh, further, in the traditional scheme of will and intellect, so when you look at the most common way of speaking of the Trinity in the Western Church, and this comes, uh, this is, this comes mostly in in the later authors from from Saint Augustine of Hippo, because he'll use this a lot. You'll you'll get that it's as the mind, the will, and the intellect. So the the Son is as the Word, proceeding from the mind. Um, in the intellect, and the the spirit is as the affection proceeding from the will. And then Augustine, Aquinas comments on this: the Son proceeds by the way of the intellect as word, and the Holy Spirit by way of the will as love. Now love must proceed from a word, for we do not love anything unless we apprehend it by a mental conception. Hence, also in this way, it is manifest that the Holy Spirit proceeds. From the sun, so in this traditional scheme of will and intellect, in order to describe the Trinity, this sort of a uh, natural Trinity, as as uh, Augustine will speak of, it is more in line with the Western conception than it is with the Eastern conception. So, uh, also another another proof of this, but this is uh, this is not as closed and shut as the last few, but. <coughs> You see, in the in the late patristic and medieval era, and in the in the early patristic era too, in among the Greek fathers and the Greek medieval authors, you get this language of um, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Son, and that He is from the Father through the Son, and that He is from the Son, and that He flows from the Son. You get all of these statements which in their theology are hinting at something like the filioque, and then they go on to deny that these terms mean that we affirm the filioque. So you see, bleeding through their writings is there is this implicit understanding and this implicit affirmation that they have to speak. The Greeks must speak in order to be in line with the fathers, that they have to speak of the spirit being in some sense from of, flows from through the sun. So it's a um, it's a recognition of this implicitly, although there's an explicit denial. Okay, now let's get into the objections. Okay. So the first objection. So, it seems not, for the Father is the divine monarch of the Trinity in regard to origin. If the Son was also the originator of the Spirit, then he too would be monarch. Therefore, it seems as if the Son is not the origin of the Spirit. So, there are three ways that you can go about going against this sort of argumentation. So, he's not spoken of divine monarch in the sense that he is the sole principle of any kind. That's, that's not the way in which we're gonna speak of the divine monarch. But rather, first, we talk about him as the sole immediate principle. That's what it means for him to be the divine monarch. Now, the second way of going about it is that we speak of him as the monarch as being sent by none, but the one who sends the Son and the Spirit. And then third, that he is begotten by none, but is unbegotten. There are multiple other different senses in which we speak of him being monarch, but one sense in which we do not speak of him being monarch is that he is the sole principle of any kind. Therefore, this argument doesn't follow. It would be as if one stated that the... King of a country isn't the king of a country because he mediates his authority in some sense through a governor. That would be a, a ridiculous assertion. In the same way, because the son is a of immediate origin when it comes to uh, when it comes to the spiration of the spirit, therefore the the father isn't the sole immediate uh, one who spirates the spirit. So the second argument is going to be that the creed states that the Holy Ghost proceedeth from the Father in the original edition of 381. Therefore, the Spirit does not proceed from the Son. So first, this is actually just a canonical question, and I actually agree with the Greeks on it because the Romanists are going to consistently state that the filioque should be in the creed because of their doctrine of papal supremacy. But I as an Anglican do not have this doctrine of papal supremacy. And Thomas Aquinas is going to admit that it would be inconsistent uh, for them to speak, for them to make this addition to the creed without this papal supremacy. So second, this argument is also a non sequitur For as was stated earlier, just because the creed states that the spirit proceeds from the father does not mean that the spirit proceeds from only the father. And now further in John 15, the spirit is said to proceed from the father with no mention of the son. So first, this is not the only passage which is going to explicitly comment on this. This would be like saying uh, you look into Peter and it says that baptism now saves you therefore God does not save you because it only speaks of baptism saving you and this is clearly a ridiculous argument you need to go through the entirety of the New Testament in order to build this doctrine because and then second um, this statement proceed from the father is happily accepted by all Western Christians and it doesn't exclude our position so fourth i think this is fourthly so fourthly john of damascus says we say that the holy spirit is from the father and we name him the spirit of the father but we do not say that the holy spirit is from the son yet we name him the spirit of the son therefore the holy spirit does not proceed from the son so this and multiple other statements of some later uh, greek authors are going to be brought forth by the eastern by eastern apologists and the response that I have, and the response that I believe you should have, is you shouldn't be going through these late, later Greek fathers and just trying to uh, quote mine what they're obviously not saying, because it's pretty obvious that a lot of these late uh, Greek fathers are denying the Western edition of the Filioque Way. and we could just simply state, well, they're wrong, and that's about it. So... That's that's it for the filioque. Let me know what you think. Remember to subscribe and God bless. Have a wonderful weekend.